The craziest experience that we had during the filming was the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. There's a place in Ancaster, Ontario, called the Hermitage. And it's uh, the kind of rubble of an old abandoned uh, manor house. And it's been turned into public property, a park that you can go and kind of hang out. So we had investigated there before and there was a lot of legends in the area about what had happened there you know sort of like at one point it was Native American burial ground at some points there are stories of glowing green corpses the lady who owned the house at one point in time the house burned to the ground and she loved it so much she just decided to continue living in it so she had a tent set up in the middle of all the rubble so there's just like layers of kind of amazing stories and and people's experiences so it had always been like a place that we'd wanted to go and do a proper investigation to get there you have to walk three miles kind of down an old dirt road and then you just see this abandoned building and uh, we had been there just kind of investigating doing some EVPs and out of the corner of my eye I saw what was I've always described it as like an eight foot tall human shape but it was as if it was static from like a TV elongated arms and legs and it moved like an animal like it was like it came towards us as if it was stalking us and as I as it started coming towards us, I realized that there was one another one on the left of it and another one on the right of it. And it was as they started to basically herd us off the property. And the part that's the craziest is the crew uh, were not believers whatsoever. And yet, you know, a handful of people on the crew that were with us witnessed the exact same thing. So it wasn't just one person or even two people. It was like seven or eight people all at once watching these giant human humanoid shaped kind of static beings creeping out of the woods and and essentially hurting us away from the building off the property and so it's always gone down as being like the most unbelievable and like terrifying thing that i've ever experienced and seen i'm jim perry and you are listening to euphemet a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. On this edition, I'm back with the Newkirks, exploring their love and lore of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, as we search a most notorious harbinger, the Mothman. What does this winged phenom tell us about our future? What does it tell us about ourselves? I'm back with Greg and Dana Newkirk. Greg, an ordained minister, chief curator of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult, and Dana, a witch and seasoned para-investigator. This time, they've taken me along on a ritual trek to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a town full of lore, mysterious men in black, UFOs and chimeras, and a tragedy that took 46 lives. 37 vehicles were on the Silver Bridge when it fell into the Ohio River, and some believe the intrusion of a winged beast into the town before the event was a sign of what was to come. For Greg and Dana, a trip to Point Pleasant is a sign. It's a destination that signifies a milestone moment is about to occur for them. They've taken me with them this time, and it feels like a celebration, like they're going back for an old friend. Their friend... The Mothman. All right, so we're in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's a really beautiful little town. It's cute. You would never know that a monster 
took over this place for like a couple months. This place is like a cycle for us because we come here every time something new happens in our lives. It's like a marker, I guess, of like specific stages of our life. So we all it, we like to come and kind of like hang out and go to all the weird places. And this is where we'd come and test new video equipment, go out to the domes at night and test things there. And yeah, we bring we bring our friends here. It's just such a neat place that I think really speaks to how positive the paranormal can really be in a lot of ways. So what's the, what's the milestone now? What is this mark? Next week, we unveil the brand new museum, uh, something we've been working on for like a year and a half. It's the biggest thing we've ever done. It's the most time and investment we've ever sunk into anything. And we're in a brand new car that can haul the museum now. And uh, it's, everything's changing. Mm-hmm. Like this is a good mile marker because everything changes again now. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I would be like bummed out if we did, hadn't come because I feel like, now it's like almost a superstition like it marks like oh yeah the next phase is going to be good so just keep coming back (laughs) every couple years just come back and uh, you know mothman kind of rubs off on us and gives us some good vibes so may mothman bless the next phase of our lives (laughs) exactly (laughs) what's crazy is that he's known as a harbinger i know right i think that's unfair though yeah sometimes harbingers are good right and maybe maybe what he's doing is like he's you know if he's a harbinger of death maybe he's setting the last phase of our lives to rest you know in a way kind of like killing it off so making room for now yeah i agree 100 percent. so we're here again start the next phase next on euphemet we lean into the lore and search for our harbinger December 15th, 1967. It's after 5 p.m. and the Silver Bridge has turned on its side. Cars full of Christmas shoppers have plunged into the ice-cold Ohio River. Chunks of steel scream and snap as large sections of the bridge have fallen, following the caravan of commuters, sealing the fate of those sinking souls. Right now we're standing at the banks of the river, the exact site of this event. It's peaceful out here, and far from the thunderous Cincinnati shore we left this morning. It's easy to see why Greg and Dana like coming out here, for its rural beauty alone, but being a place marked by tragedy and high strangeness makes this quite a unique spot to celebrate a life change. Then again, everything about Greg and Dana is unique, including how this partnership all started on the periphery of the paranormal. We're looking at where the Silver Bridge used to be, and now it's gone. The Mothman started showing up in the late 60s here in Point Pleasant, but he was this winged creature that uh, people started to see. People digging graves would see him, um, then people parked at the TNT area, just kids like parking, necking, would, would see him and they were chased all the way back to Point Pleasant. These sightings continued for a year and really frightened the entire town, sent the town into a panic and shortly after uh, the Silver Bridge collapsed. So a lot of people believe that the Silver Bridge collapse was, you know, being foretold by the Mothman showing up, like he was a harbinger of doom. And a lot of people died in the accident, like it was a big tragedy. I mean, that's the type of thing that the town never forgets. Uh, It left a huge impact on the area. And so I think consequently, 
Mothman also made a huge impact on the area because that all of that stuff was happening around the same time. So it's just like interconnected, regardless of whether he really was a harbinger of doom or not. Those stories are stuck together. So it's never going to leave. He was described as being a giant winged creature with glowing red eyes. When you see some of the depictions of him, the idea of seeing something like that, first of all, would be absolutely terrifying. And at the time, and even now, there are a lot of people who try to say that, you know, they they saw giant winged birds or there was some kind of an animal there. But really, when you look at the descriptions and when you read some of the descriptions, it doesn't really look like anything that you could possibly, you know, attribute to an animal. It literally was, it sounds terrifying and visually it's really scary looking. I think what interests me the most is the timeline. Um, It's the idea that this town experienced this really bizarre phenomena for an entire year. And that in a lot of ways, some of the people who lived here felt like they were being stalked and watched and harassed by this thing. And and they didn't understand why it was happening. You know, that many people dying in such a small place, it's affecting every single person who lives here. So I think for me, the timeline is the creepiest. It's just this slow burn where he was here kind of stalking and preparing people for what was inevitably going to happen. But they didn't know what was going to happen. Dana and I, we both had these little local ghost hunting teams. And we had these GeoCities websites. They were all, you know, left-hand justified. And if you got more than 10 people on them at once, it would crash. And uh, we, we had these little ghost hunting teams. And then eventually, I think it was you who stumbled across us. Mm-hmm. And her and her team, they were an all-girl team. We were an all-boy team. And they reached out and were like, hey, we're doing the same stuff, you know, like it'd be cool to swap tips and methods and things like that. My team was Ghost Hunters Incorporated and uh, we came up with it in high school. It was like 1998 and uh, we started ghost hunting by accident. We took our friend Nick out to the cemetery not too far from my house. And this dates it because we had a friend of ours hide in the cemetery, one of our older friends who had a car. And he like made Blair Witch symbols and was hanging them from trees and stuff. And we set this whole elaborate thing up just to scare our friend Nick. And we had such a good time that we decided to start going to cemeteries without anybody set anything up. And when weird stuff started to happen, we were like, holy cow, monsters are real. And so then it was the library and reading books by Hans Holzer and books by Ed and Lorraine Warren, stuff like that. And then we built a website. And we shared these stories of our little adventures basically with our high school was it. So, yeah, we were just a bunch of troublemaker, loser kids that uh, decided to go hang out in cemeteries and abandoned houses at night and have weird adventures. It's great. So how in the world does a group of all-girl ghost hunters in Toronto, right, like find out about these hit kids out in the woods it was funny. I mean, so you have to think of like the climate of like 2000. So it was 2000, 2001. And my friends and I, who like, we just happened to all be girls. It wasn't on purpose. We just all were girls and we were interested in the paranormal. 
And when we decided that we wanted to actually go out and start investigating, we kind of started reaching out to people in our area and reaching out to people around us. And most people ignored us because we were all young girls and they were they didn't take us seriously and they weren't really interested in anything that we had to say. So one of the reasons why we first started communicating with Ghost Hunters Incorporated is because they were like relatively the same age as us. And we were like, well, maybe they won't care. Maybe it won't really matter. And they didn't really care. And so that was why we sort of started this kind of conversation where we would, like Greg said, share tips and talk about creepy places and, um, you know, share each other's investigations and all that kind of stuff. So it sort of happened accidentally, but um, mostly because they didn't really give a crap that we were like four girls from Canada. If you want to know how big of a bunch of losers me and my friends were, so she says we didn't care that they were a bunch of girls. This is how much we didn't care. When we really hit it off, I mean, we considered each other like a brother-sister team at one point. They made a plan to come to the States and spend a weekend in our town, and we were going to take them to all of our places. Uh, hilariously enough, we really just wanted to investigate in all their good spots because, <laughs> like, I, I'm from the city, so for us to, like, actually investigate buildings, a lot of the time it, there was a lot of effort to get to that point. And for Greg, he grew up in rent, like rural Pennsylvania. So all of his locations are amazing and abandoned. And like you can just spend all night in there. But we all got so nervous about hanging out with girls <laughs> that we made up stories about how like for, for some reason, like four of our grandparents died at once. <laughs> <laughs> we and here it's so funny, too, because it's that's literally true. We were like, how come all of them have like sick grandparents all at once? <laughs> We were just nervous about hanging out with girls for days at a time. And uh, so we, we bailed on them. And that's when, it, that's when the feud started, really. Yeah. And then, then they got a TV show. And that was over. We were so upset because, you know, we were brother-sister team. And we were so mad. How did they, why did they get a TV show? Just a bunch of jealous kids. We originally did a little segment in our uh, town and that segment turned into an episode of a Canadian show called Magnificent Obsessions which was a big Canadian show at the time and they came and spent a week with us a week and a half with us and we went on adventures and it actually ended up becoming a full-on series from that one episode so it was kind of all accidental we thought it would just be fun to go out and shoot uh, an episode of a show that we all kind of liked and watched already and then it spiraled into us getting our own series and it we I don't think we ever really expected that, that it was going to happen but um when it did it was amazing because I basically got to spend you know like four months with my best friends and we got to travel all over Canada and go into places that still to this day you can't go in and investigate so it was it was a super awesome experience and um definitely something that uh I I loved at the time but even now my memories of like getting to go into you know like the Bytown Museum, which is an incredible museum in Ottawa that like no one will ever get the chance to actually ghost hunt. I got to ghost hunt it. So um, for me, it was really, it was special. It was a really cool, cool time. After the show, everyone was kind of burnt out on it. So it, it, we enjoyed it and there were a lot of people that enjoyed it, but obviously the nature of it being called the girly ghost hunters, we did get a lot of crap from people and um, it kind of bummed us out. Like, to the point where we were like, we're kind of, I don't really want to do this anymore. Like it, we were sort of like mercilessly made fun of by like the paranormal community in Canada. So we sort of tuned it out and stopped investigating for the most part. And really, I think 
it wasn't until 2006 again till I started investigating again and at that point I, the other members of the team had just sort of moved on and weren't really interested in it anymore and it wasn't too long after the show had ended that I kind of started to feel bad actually and you know as as you do and I was thinking about them and I tried to send them a couple emails and they bounced or they just weren't returned somebody might have ignored them um, tried to find them on social media and I couldn't find any of them on social media and I really just, I became obsessed with the idea of apologizing. Because the, the fact of the matter was, I had a huge crush on Dana. I was that guy who picked on a girl because he liked her. So I did the creepiest thing imaginable. And I rented a car. And I printed out photos of the girls. And I drove to the town I knew they lived in years before. And just started asking people, do you know this girl? Do you know this girl? And... I mean, it's, it's insane, but what's even crazier is the fact that it worked too well. I mean, within half an hour, I tracked him down. And um, I saw there was Nicole working in the deli. Nicole was one of the girly ghost hunters. And when she realized who I was, and she saw my friend next to me, who had been part of my ghost hunting team, the, all the blood drained out of her face. And she went, oh my god. And she was super nervous. And I was like, oh God, this is, I was like, we're not here for anything. We're, we're here, we're just, we're on a peace mission. We're just here to say hi and apologize. And she's like, let me call Dana. I remember it clear as well, because you, you have to imagine that this is, this experience is coming off of a, like six months to a year's worth of like people making fun of us on the internet. So I was like, oh, they're here to like make fun of us. Well, then, then Nicole gave me the phone. She's like, here, just talk to Dana. And I, that was the first time we ever talked. Because we'd only ever talked online before that point. So that was the first time we'd ever spoken. And I just said, Do you, hey, you want to go ghost hunting? And she was like, yeah, all right, I guess. So we met them somewhere later that night. And we went on a ghost hunt. And I apologized, which I think was the important part. And I, I told her, I said, I've been trying to email you and I've been trying to get a hold of you just to say I was sorry for how much of an ass I was. And um, then we just, we kept in touch. We talked a lot after that. We emailed quite a bit at first and then I moved to Seattle. And then one day, Dana came out and stayed for three months. And then the rest was history. I mean, we. We started building websites together and talking about adventures we were going to go on together and we started ghost hunting together. And when you have, you know, when your significant other is helping you do that, it's you, you just have someone to kind of lean on it all the time. So we were just kind of constantly building things and, and going on adventures and enabling each other <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> enabling each other to become as weird as we have now become all these years later. So it kind of worked out, I guess. We're seven miles outside of Point Pleasant. A short drive on a rural West Virginia dirt road has taken us to a former home of high explosives. During World War II, the concrete igloo I'm currently standing next to was intentionally covered by foliage. It's referred to as the TNT area. 2,500 acres hosting 100 of these stark domes, camouflaged to protect munitions from any leering eyes from above, guarding the preciousness from the danger that could reveal itself from the sky. 
Some 20 odd years later, people near these domes were looking up in fear once again. This time, an even more mysterious presence than that of enemy wing combatants. This time, perhaps much less human. More on that later. For now, the sun is setting on us, and it's getting dark out here very quick. That's gunfire from across the swamp. Trigger happy heroes, as John Keel would call them. We retreat into one of the dark bunkers, fearing a stray bullet. More than a mothman. It's because everything you say in here lasts longer. Like it has a vibration that carries it like further almost than when we're standing outside and everything sounds flat. And like once you've said it, it's done. Everything in here, it's like elongated, stretched out vibration. But you know what's interesting about that? So is everything that happens in Point Pleasant. It just vibrates out for decades. It even grows. I mean, Mothman was only here for a year. But has he ever really left? I think, I think he's like an imprint on a place. Like he's, in, he's imprinted into this place back then and now and, and always. And I think he, he will continue being here. Um, whether people remember him or not, he's, he's part of this place now. We're always talking about the idea of retro psychokinesis and how like the ripple doesn't just move forward in time. Impactful events move backward in time too. So all anybody's doing with the Mothman Museum, and the statue, and all the people who come to the domes, and looking for Mothman, that's just rippling backwards too, making that moment even more impactful than it initially was. Isn't that what we do when we fall in love? Kind of, you know. It absolutely is. We've had people tell us, the psychics, that we've known each other before. And that we, you know, this might not be our first go-around. Maybe every other go-around we didn't meet or maybe we met briefly. And that we've just kind of been in other lives, pushing us closer together. Maybe this is the one where we finally ended up together. Then we get to launch off this rocket and we won't have to come back again because we've, we've become one one blobulous human being <laughs> the first time we ever came out here was we had just gotten a vehicle. We just moved to Cincinnati. Um, it was a brand new phase of our lives and we wanted to mark the occasion. So we got in the car and drove out here in the middle of the night and went on an adventure. And we came out, we went into the domes and 
experienced it at all. M much more scared than we are now, you know. It's Once you've seen it a few times, it's not quite as scary, but we were super wigged out and um, just kind of taking the vibe in. And it's strange, it's become a weird marker for big phases in our lives. We've always come out here whenever there's a new phase, whenever we're getting ready to enter one. And uh, I mean, it's funny that you came out when you did because we're entering a brand new phase. I mean, like right now, we just upgraded our vehicle to hold the new museum, which is much more massive and serious than it's ever been. And we launch it next week and everything's gonna change after that. So just keep repeating that cycle. Every time something big happens, we come out here. I just can't get over this sort of synchronicity that you have with the Mothman. Or, I, I mean, you, you can call it a relationship almost. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a creature or lore that is a signifier of something. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a harbinger or whether that's just a friendly reminder that something is about to change. Mm -hmm. That's what it's become to you, but in a much different way. I mean, people always say that harbingers are evil, the harbingers are bad, but they're really not. They're, they're just a warning. The harbinger itself isn't particularly bad. I mean, sometimes the changes are, but everything changes. Everything's going to be different. At least a harbinger brings you a warning that it's time to change. And, you know, I, even with Mothman, I almost feel bad because people assume that he's, he was evil. But he was I don't, trying to help. I think he was trying to warn people. So, you know, change is good. Even if, if it comes out of, of something negative or something bad, change is good. It pushes you forward. So it seems fitting that we have this weird relationship with Mothman <laughs> and we keep coming out to this place every time we're forced into a new place, every time something's going to change. You know, he's our personal harbinger. I always think about change in terms of the tarot. And I think about the, the tower card, for instance. The tower is this card that represents kind of chaos that happens when change is force. Mothman kind of represents that to me. He represents just sort of bravely embracing it so things don't get stagnant, so that you're not forced to change. You kind of have a hand in it. And I think that he was here for so long trying to get that message across and, and people were scared or people didn't know what to make out of it. And in the end, what ended up happening was the tower card of the tarot. It was sort of like a forced change. Things were forced to happen. So I like to kind of embrace that and not be afraid of it so that we aren't sort of being forced to change. We're part of the change as opposed to it just happening to us. It's happening with us. If Greg hadn't gotten into a car because he just kind of felt like this was something he was supposed to be doing, we, we all of us wouldn't even be standing here right now. So it's, you got to trust your intuition and trust that it's, it's leading you in the right directions, even if that's scary. If I hadn't felt that absolute need to come to Canada, I'd be, I'd be miserable. Yeah. I can't imagine what my life would be like Our right now. Completely different from the ones that they are right now. Because we continue to enable each other right, to be weird. And we create together. And I think the, the balance of what we create together is made because of you and I. And I think that's why it always, uh, it, it's always what we want it to be. It, it, it impacts, I think, probably because you know, we, we're 
constantly working together to build those things. If we compare it to the path we were walking and how scary things are at the beginning of the path, you know, sometimes it's the scariest when you have to walk that alone, but eventually you meet people. It's a lot less scary walking that path when you have a friend, when you have somebody who's there to help you walk that path. And that's what we do, you know? Things get tough and scary sometimes, but we push each other further down that path and things just get better and nicer the further we go because we've got each other at least. And maybe that's it. Maybe sometimes you just need a, you need a partner on the scary walk. I try not to ever take it for granted because I know that there's a lot of people that don't have that and a lot of people might never find that, at least not in this life. You know, who knows how many lives it took for us to find it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rare and really special and, you know, I don't think we take each other for granted. Dana's my best friend. I love her. I love her more than anyone I've ever loved, ever. I think the reason I haven't said it is because I'll start crying if I do. It's, uh... I do. I've, I've never loved anyone as much as... That'll be the name of my memoir, Crying in Mo Mothman Territory. <laughs> oh god no it's true though I, I i've never i've never felt this way about anyone before and it's it's um you know and i think it's because i know how rare it is and i know how rare it is to find someone like dana who you know pushes me when i'm scared and who uh you know we're we're each the best parts of what we don't have i mean every every day is better than the last everything we do we don't let each other get kind of bummed out. Like, as, as simple as that sounds, we're always kind of there to pull each other out of that. It makes me emotional. I love him more than anything. I mean, he's, the, he's literally the most um, important person in the world, so. In the middle of the dome, Dana is kneeled at an equipment case come divination table. Illuminated by the cross beams of flashlights, she shuffles her tarot deck. The air is heavy. We are way back in here. And I feel small. But more importantly, we want to know how this place feels. We've never tried this before, but Dana's a pretty great tarot reader and we have this deck of cards that was donated to the museum that used to belong to a professional tarot reader and the woman who gave them to us uh, is convinced that the woman is still with them and didn't like that. She actually tried to cleanse each of the cards with holy water and then all hell broke loose in her home and uh, it's probably because the woman who used them wasn't very happy about that. So now we quite often will use them and uh, use them for readings in places, and it almost feels like the woman is helping. I'll, I'll pull three cards and get a general vibe just for this area. I, I've done, I will usually pull cards in locations that we go to, but I've never done it here, so I'm curious to see what I get. So the first card is the Empress, which is interesting. The World. So we have two High Arcana cards. That's really fascinating. Now we'll cut it one last time. 
wow, three, uh, three higher arcana cards, two face forward, one reverse. So we have the Empress, the World, and the Star. What do you think it's saying? I think it's saying the phenomena is specific to the environment. I think that it's saying um, that it's not specific to this area, that it's happening all over the world, and that in order to properly investigate it, we have to remain grounded. Which makes a lot of sense. One foot in and one foot out. And the magician, I just yeah, I did see him right at the bottom of the staff. That's our card. The magician. We're always striving for that card. And it pops up in like the weirdest ways. Right as we're finished, she flips the deck over and boom, there's the magician. Right there. Master of his reality. <laughs> just a, another little tweak from the universe. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. To learn more about Greg and Dana's work, visit paramuseum.com. Also, make sure to join our group, the Society of Euphemet, on Facebook. For more on The Mothman, I, of course, recommend the New York Times bestseller, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. This is one of those times where just watching the movie will not suffice. Also, to support the show, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. You can follow us at Euphemet on all social media and me at It's Jim Perry on Twitter. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up. <laughs>